People respond to God's word in different ways. Some people hear it and accept it. They welcome it. Some people hear it and rage against it. It makes them angry. And other people just don't care. They hear the message and they shrug their shoulders. They're apathetic. So what? What does it matter to me? Today in Britain, apathy is probably the most common reaction to God's Word. People couldn't care less. And it is even possible for the church to become apathetic about God's Word. If nobody else is taking it seriously, why should we? Well, this morning we're going to look at a passage which is designed to blow away any apathy that we might have. Over the last two weeks, we've been listening to the young prophet Jeremiah at the beginning of his ministry, the early days. God is giving him messages for Judah, and it seems these chapters contain the earliest of those messages that Jeremiah was given. Jeremiah began by telling a love story, the story of how Israel had become the Lord's people. It was like a marriage, and it had started so well. But through Israel's neglect, the marriage became a shambles of unfaithfulness. It was Israel's unfaithfulness. Like an unfaithful wife, she took other lovers in the form of false gods. The marriage was broken. But having painted that sad picture... Jeremiah followed it up with a call to come back to God. Through Jeremiah, God pleaded with his unfaithful people, return to me, for I am your husband. A sad love story followed by a plea to come home. And God explained the way home is through true repentance. Not just saying the right words, but turning back to God from the heart. Not holding on to sin, but letting it go. God described it as circumcision of the heart. That's a way of showing true repentance hurts. It cuts. It cuts deep. We have to humble ourselves before God, and we have to be willing to give up the sin we've been clinging to. That is the way home to God. And he's ready to welcome all who come home to him, no matter how far away they are. But what if we don't come home? What if the people of Judah don't return to the God who loves them? What if they carry on being unfaithful? What if they continue prostituting themselves to other lovers? Well, in the passage we looked at last week, God gave a very brief answer to that question at the very end of our passage. In chapter 4, verse 4, he said through Jeremiah, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, you people of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Or my wrath will flare up and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. In other words, we dare not be apathetic about God's offer of mercy. 
we dare not ignore his call to return because the alternative is to experience God's burning, unquenchable wrath against evil. That's what Jeremiah's next message is about as he speaks to the people of Judah. In chapter 4, verses 5 to 31, we find visions of judgment and the anguish of love. If you're following along in the church Bible, you'll find this in page 760 or in the larger print Bibles, 1177. Jeremiah 4, and we'll read from verse 5 down to verse 31. Announce in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, sound the trumpet throughout the land. Cry aloud and say, gather together. Let us flee to the fortified cities. Raise the signal to go to Zion. Flee for safety without delay, for I am bringing disaster from the north, even terrible destruction. A lion has come out of his lair. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has left his place to lay waste your land. Your towns will lie in ruins without inhabitant. So put on sackcloth, lament and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned away from us. In that day, declares the Lord, the king and the officials will lose heart. The priests will be horrified and the prophets will be appalled. Then I said, alas, sovereign Lord, how completely you have deceived this people and Jerusalem by saying you will have peace when the sword is at our throats. At that time, this people in Jerusalem will be told, a scorching wind from the barren heights in the desert blows towards my people, but not to winnow or cleanse. A wind too strong for that comes from me. Now I pronounce my judgments against them. Look, he advances like the clouds. His chariots come like a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, we are ruined." Jerusalem, wash the evil from your heart and be saved. How long will you harbor wicked thoughts? A voice is announcing from Dan, proclaiming disaster from the hills of Ephraim. Tell this to the nations. Proclaim concerning Jerusalem. A besieging army is coming from a distant land, raising a war cry against the cities of Judah. They surround her like men guarding a field because she has rebelled against me, declares the Lord. Your own conduct and actions have brought this on you. This is your punishment. How bitter it is. How it pierces to the heart. Oh, my anguish. My anguish. I writhe in pain. Oh, the agony of my heart. My heart pounds within me. I cannot keep silent. For I have heard the sound of the trumpet. I have heard the battle cry. Disaster follows disaster. The whole land lies in ruins. In an instant, my tents are destroyed, my shelter in a moment. How long must I see the battle standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? My people are fools. They do not know me. They are senseless children. They have no understanding. They are skilled in doing evil. They know not how to do good. 
I looked at the earth, and it was formless and empty, and at the heavens, and their light was gone. I looked at the mountains, and they were quaking. All the hills were swaying. I looked, and there were no people. Every bird in the sky had flown away. I looked, and the fruitful land was a desert. All its towns lay in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. This is what the Lord says, the whole land will be ruined, though I will not destroy it completely. Therefore, the earth will mourn and the heavens above grow dark, because I have spoken and will not relent. I have decided and will not turn back. At the sign of horsemen and archers, every town takes to flight. Some go into the thickets, some climb up among the rocks. All the towns are deserted. No one lives in them. What are you doing, you devastated one? Why dress yourself in scarlet and put on jewels of gold? Why highlight your eyes with makeup? You adorn yourself in vain. Your lovers despise you. They want to kill you. I hear a cry as of a woman in labor, a groan as of one bearing her first child. The cry of daughter's eye and gasping for breath, stretching out her hands and saying, Alas, I am fainting. My life is given over to murderers. This is God's word. And remember, this is early in Jeremiah's ministry. So what is being described here is not actually happening at this point. It is not inevitable at this point. This is a warning of what will happen if Judah refuses to return to the Lord who loves her. The outcome will be deserved disaster. Jeremiah describes a situation of panic. When verse 5 says, sound the trumpet, this is not a request for a symphony. The trumpet here is a hollowed out ram's horn. It bellows out. It's like the ancient equivalent of an air raid siren. This is an alarm signal. People need to sprint for the cities and hide behind the walls. And the reason is, at the end of verse 6, God says, I am bringing disaster from the north, even terrible destruction. Now what we need to know is, at this point in time, as Jeremiah proclaims these words in Jerusalem, there is no threat from the north. The Assyrians used to be a threat. They're the ones who'd overrun the northern kingdom about a hundred years before this. But at this point, the Assyrian empire is in collapse. And the Babylonians have not yet become powerful. They are still a non-entity. So even as Jeremiah is boldly proclaiming this picture of panic, it looks and it sounds silly. You can imagine people in the crowd calling out, Jeremiah, who are you talking about? Who's going to bring this terrible destruction? There is no enemy to the north of us anymore. The message that Jeremiah was boldly proclaiming was very easy for the people to dismiss. 
And very often, warnings of God's judgment are very easy to dismiss, especially when life seems to be pretty secure. In the New Testament, Peter says men and women will react the same way to warnings about Jesus' return. You must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Because judgment seems unlikely, it is easy to dismiss. Of course, what these people in Judah didn't know at this point was that in the next few years, a powerful enemy would arise in the north. Babylon would become a superpower, well capable of bringing disaster down on Judah. So the fact that Jeremiah's message was easy to dismiss, that didn't mean they were wise to dismiss it. As he speaks in Jerusalem, you'll notice Jeremiah does not name the Babylonians. That's because at this point, he probably doesn't know himself how this disaster could happen. He's simply being faithful to the message God has given him. Jeremiah is proclaiming the message, and he's trusting that God has the details under control. And as Christians, you and I have the same responsibility. We don't know all the details about Christ's return. We don't know exactly how he's going to bring all that judgment on evil. We certainly don't know God's timetable. And as much as we study scripture and we try to learn what we can, we still have to admit God has not given us more than a general sketch of how things are going to unfold. But what he has given us is a promise that judgment will come. And we must call people to turn to God before it's too late. In Jeremiah's case, he has been given a promise that judgment will come if there is no repentance. So as skeptical as the crowds might be and as unlikely as the situation might seem, Jeremiah carries on sharing this vision of God's judgment, this warning. Verse 7, a lion has come out of his lair. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has left his place to lay waste your land. Your towns will lie in ruins without inhabitant. So put on sackcloth, lament and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned away from us. In that day, declares the Lord, the king and the officials will lose heart. The priests will be horrified. And the prophets will be appalled. Then I said, Alas, sovereign Lord, how completely you have deceived this people in Jerusalem by saying you will have peace when the sword is at our throats. This unnamed enemy from the north is compared to a ravaging lion. But of course, what is most striking to us is not so much the fierce enemy. It's Jeremiah's reaction to this message. In this book, the very first words we heard from Jeremiah were an objection. 
When God commissioned Jeremiah to be a prophet to the nations, Jeremiah's response was, Alas, sovereign Lord, I'm too young. And here, the first time we have heard any of Jeremiah's own words since chapter 1, he again responds to God's word with, Alas, sovereign Lord. And this time, he accuses God of completely deceiving the people by saying you will have peace. Even though there's this real threat of disaster. What does Jeremiah mean? Well, in fact, it's the false prophets in Judah who've been assuring the people they will have peace. That will come to light as the book goes on. In chapter 6, verse 14, we discover the prophets and priests have been practicing deceit. They have been telling the people, peace, peace, when in fact there is no peace as far as God's concerned. So it's the religious leaders who have been completely deceiving the people, telling them they're fine, assuring them they don't need to examine their hearts and repent. And so then, why is Jeremiah getting upset with God? Well, the clue is in how he refers to God. He calls him Sovereign Lord. Jeremiah knows this message of peace is not directly from God, but he knows God could have silenced it. He's sovereign. He could have stopped these false prophets and their lies. So essentially, Jeremiah is saying, Lord, if disaster is coming, why are you letting religious people proclaim this false message of peace? You're allowing people to be deceived. Why don't you stop it? And the answer is, if the people won't listen to Jeremiah, if they prefer the comforting message of false prophets who tell them their sin is no problem, false prophets who tell them God will turn a blind eye to evil, if that is what the people of Judah want, God will let them have it. The Bible often refers to sinful people being given over to their sin. In 1 Kings chapter 22, we read about King Ahab. Ahab surrounded himself with false prophets who would only say and prophesy good things about him. Ahab did not want to hear from God's faithful prophet, Micaiah, because Micaiah was warning him about God's judgment. Ahab was living in defiance of God, but he would only listen to positive news. And so, the writer of Kings tells us, the Lord put a deceiving spirit into the mouths of Ahab's prophets. The king would not listen to God's word from Micaiah, so God gave him up to the comforting lies of the other prophets. And as a result, Ahab went into battle against Micaiah's advice, and Ahab died in that battle. Was God sovereign in that situation? Yes. Was it unfair that a man who loved lies more than the truth was deceived by those lies? No, it wasn't unfair at all. 
And in case we think this is just an Old Testament thing, listen to what the Apostle Paul says about those who refuse to love the truth and be saved. For this reason, because they refuse to love the truth, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. And so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. This is not just an Old Testament thing. When men and women refuse to love the truth, when they prefer comforting lies, telling them everything's fine, that their sin's no problem, then at some point, God may give those men and women over to the lies they love so much. That is part of the disaster that comes on those who will not return to God in true repentance. Here in our passage, that is what God explains to Jeremiah. If Judah loves lies, God will let them be deceived by lies. If Judah will not repent, there will come a time when they are no longer able to repent. Look at verse 11. At that time, in other words, if there is no repentance and the things you're warning about actually begin to happen, at that time, this people in Jerusalem will be told, a scorching wind from the barren heights in the desert blows towards my people, but not to winnow or cleanse. A wind too strong for that comes from me. Now I pronounce my judgments against them. The foe from the north has previously been described as a rampaging lion. Now he's pictured as a scorching wind. And Jeremiah is told this wind of judgment is not being sent to discipline and purify the people of Judah. No, this is being sent only to destroy to sweep them away. In the ancient world, when a farmer had harvested his grain, he would have to winnow it. That means he would toss the kernels of grain into the air with a fork, and the breeze would blow away the useless stuff that was mixed in with the grain, the straw and the chaff. When the wind had done its work, blowing away the rubbish, then the good stuff the heavier grain would fall back down to the ground. The wheat would have been separated from the chaff. But here God says, if there's no repentance in Judah, the wind of judgment I'm going to send will not be sent to winnow, to sort out the wheat from the chaff. No, this wind will sweep everything away. And with that in mind, Jeremiah is sent back out to go on preaching this message of warning. Verse 13, look, he advances like the clouds, his chariots come like a whirlwind, his horses are swifter than eagles, woe to us, we are ruined. Be warned, Jerusalem, while you still can, verse 14, wash the evil from your heart and be saved. How long will you harbor wicked thoughts? In other words, how long will you tolerate sin as a welcome guest in your life? Jeremiah says, listen to what the outcome of that will be for you. Verse 15, a voice is announcing from Dan, proclaiming disaster, 
from the hills of Ephraim. Tell this to the nations. Proclaim concerning Jerusalem. A besieging army is coming from a distant land, raising a war cry against the cities of Judah. They surround her like men guarding a field because she has rebelled against me, declares the Lord. Your own conduct and actions have brought this on you. This is your punishment. How bitter it is. How it pierces to the heart. God's judgment never falls without reason. When it falls, it is a deserved disaster. But that does not mean God is happy about the disaster. As I read again verses 19 to 22, listen as we read these together and ask, who do you think is speaking in these verses? Verse 19, oh, my anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. My anguish is literally my stomach, my stomach. Oh, the agony of my heart, my heart pounds within me. I cannot keep silent, for I have heard the sound of the trumpet. I have heard the battle cry. Disaster follows disaster. The whole land lies in ruins. In an instant, my tents are destroyed, my shelter in a moment. How long must I see the battle standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? My people are fools. They do not know me. They are senseless children. They have no understanding. They are skilled in doing evil. They know not how to do good. Who is speaking in those verses? Well, verses 19 to 21 would seem to indicate this is Jeremiah speaking. He thinks about the visions of judgment he has been shown, and he feels like he's been kicked in the stomach. He writhes in pain. His, the agony in his emotions is causing a physical reaction in his body. He's contorted by this. He's doubled over with distress. His heart is pounding. He's groaning as he sees the danger Judah is in. Verse 20 seems to be further evidence this is Jeremiah speaking. He realizes he's going to be caught up in this potentially. He says, my tents are destroyed, my shelter in a moment. This is Jeremiah's distress. But then look again at verse 22. My people are fools. They do not know me. They are senseless children. They have no understanding. They are skilled in doing evil. They know not how to do good. Those words can only be the Lord's. These people are his wayward children. So what's going on here? What's going on is that God's anguish over this situation is being experienced physically by God's prophet. When we started looking at this book, we said we would not only hear God's voice through Jeremiah, we would see God's life through Jeremiah. Jeremiah would feel God's feelings. And here we have the first instance of that. The anguish here is God's. And as the people of Judah see God's prophet Jeremiah, they should be left in no doubt about God's anguish. 
as he considers the stubborn unrepentance of Judah and the judgment it could bring, Jeremiah experiences physical and emotional agony. And his own agony is a reflection of divine distress. This is not an isolated idea in Scripture. Through the prophet Ezekiel, God said, I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. Repent and live. Earlier we read in 2 Peter, the Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And in Jesus Christ, we also see divine distress manifested in physical distress. Luke chapter 19 records Jesus' words foretelling the destruction of Jerusalem because of the people's unbelief. But Luke also tells us, as Jesus said those words, he wept over the city. The God of the Bible is the God who rules and cares. He will not ignore evil. Where there is no repentance, he will bring judgment. And he takes no pleasure in judgment. In Scripture, he reveals himself to be the God who experiences anguish at the judgment that must come. When you and I consider the fact that we are called to be like God, we might want to ask ourselves this question. Where are the men and women who have such awe for the justice of God such love for the church of Jesus Christ and such pity for the lost souls of the world that they weep over the sins of the nation. Where are the men and women who have tender hearts like Jeremiah? Where are the men and women who have tender hearts like Jeremiah's God? Because it's not hard, is it, to get bitter and scornful about the sins of the nation. It feels good to have that kind of zeal for the truth. But isn't it more of a challenge to feel anguish about the sin around us? Even as we continue to insist, God is in the right when he punishes evil. Let's ask God to give us some of his divine distress about the judgment that has to come. Jeremiah feels like he's been kicked in the stomach, but there's more for him still to see. In verse 23, he's shown the aftermath of judgment. I looked at the earth, and it was formless and empty. And at the heavens, and their light was gone. I looked at the mountains, and they were quaking. All the hills were swaying. I looked, and there were no people. Every bird in the sky had flown away. I looked, and the fruitful land was a desert. All its towns lay in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. What is described in these verses is the undoing of Genesis chapter 1. 
Verse 23 describes this judged earth as being formless and empty. There's only one other place in the whole Bible that uses those exact words to describe the earth. It's Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Just before God began to bring light and order and life, the earth was formless and empty. And here, Genesis 1 is in reverse. In these verses, the lights go out, the people go, the animals go, fruitfulness turns into a desert. What we're being shown is that God's judgment is not a minor tremor. It's not something people can just grit their teeth and get through. It's devastating. Jeremiah has been shown a vision of ultimate judgment. But then he's told, unrepentant Judah will receive only a partial measure of this. In verse 27, the whole land will be ruined, though I will not destroy it completely. In other words, if God's judgment falls on Judah, it will be bad. This is not overstating the bleakness of what's coming. But it will not be the final judgment. If Judah is ruined, life in this world will go on. God's judgment on Judah will not mean the end of his plans for the world and his patience with the world. God will repeat this promise twice in chapter 5. As terrible as the judgment will be on Judah, there will still be hope for the world. As there still is today. Today we are able to look back on all the judgments God has brought throughout history. And we can recognize his great patience that he has not yet brought a final end to history. But we can also learn from those partial judgments. They give us some idea of the utter horror of his final judgment. And as we look with Jeremiah at this vision of judgment, it's painful to see what comes next. Because it's a description of pathetic defiance. God has already said, if Judah continues in her unfaithfulness, his judgment will not come as a moderate wind that winnows and cleanses the people. It will be a scorching wind that sweeps everything away. And yet, even as that devastation sweeps in, there will be some who kid themselves. There's no need to worry. There's no need to fuss about this. We'll get out of it. We'll get through it. We have friends who can help us. Look at verse 30. What are you doing, you devastated one? Why dress yourself in scarlet and put on jewels of gold? Why highlight your eyes with makeup? You adorn yourself in vain. Your lovers despise you. They want to kill you. Second Kings records how God appointed a man called Jehu as his instrument of judgment. Jehu was sent to bring judgment against the dynasty of Ahab in the northern kingdom of Israel. We're told that Jehu went on a rampage, which led him finally to Ahab's palace in Jezreel. 
At that point, Ahab himself was already dead. But the writer of Kings tells us when Ahab's wife Jezebel heard Jehu was arriving in his chariot, she put on eye makeup, she arranged her hair, and then she went to the window and shouted abuse at Jehu. She could see God's judgment was coming, but she was confident she could outlast it. Somehow, if she put her best face on and her most bold attitude, she'd be able to bluster through it somehow. But she did not outlast God's judgment. Her attendance tipped her out the window. She was eaten by scavenger dogs as she lay dead in the street. Jezebel's defiance looked pretty pathetic in the end. Her friends weren't able to help her. They didn't want to help her. But here, Jeremiah is shown, Jezebel would not be the last to try and defy God's judgment. Here, of course, we're not dealing with just one woman's defiance. The woman here represents Judah, hoping her old lovers will find her attractive enough to save her. She's looking to the idols she's been prostituting herself to. Maybe they can save her. Or maybe she can catch the eye of another nation. They'll swoop in and get her out of trouble. But Jeremiah is showing the pathetic outcome of this dressing up. Verse 31 tells what happens to this made-up lady. Jeremiah says, I hear a cry as of a woman in labor, a groan as of one bearing her first child, the cry of daughter Zion, gasping for breath, stretching out her hands and saying, Alas, I am fainting. My life is given over to murderers. At first, when he hears these cries of agony, Jeremiah thinks it must be a woman giving birth. But no. This is Judah. Here she's called Daughter Zion. She saw judgment coming. She got dolled up for her lovers. But she has realized too late. They aren't going to help her. They've never been interested in helping her. Their aim was always to murder her. And now, in her vulnerability and her helplessness, she has run to them and they have taken their chance. God is patient. He is patient beyond all reasonable limits. The Bible says he's so patient, he's patient to the point where we might begin to question his justice. But when his just judgment finally comes, there will be no one to run to. No one who will deliver. No one who can be charmed or seduced into fixing things. The false saviors people look to will turn out to be murderers. If you have been ignoring Jesus, the true savior, Maybe hoping you can sweet-talk your way through Judgment Day. 
or bluster your way through, if you're hoping to find a friend on that day who can get you out of trouble, please learn from this. It isn't going to work. It will be too late. Here in Jeremiah chapter 4, it is not yet too late. This terrible vision of judgment is a warning. This judgment has not arrived yet. The people of Judah can still return to God. That's why Jeremiah has been sent out in the streets to preach to them, to show them what will arrive if they ignore God's calls, return to me, return to me, return to me. God's messengers have always been called to give both an invitation and a warning. God offers outrageous mercy to all who will come. And there are terrible consequences for rejecting his mercy. That's what we are called to as well. An invitation and a warning. But even as we pass on God's warning, let's ask him to give us some of his tender heart. Some of his anguish for those who are lost in their sin. We've seen some of that tenderness here in our passage. The place where we see God's tenderness and compassion most clearly is on the cross. When we look at the cross, how could we ever doubt God's compassion for his enemies? So that's how we're going to close, by looking to the cross, where sorrow and love flow mingled down. We'll sing together, when I survey the wondrous cross.